Well, good afternoon to you all, and thanks for coming to this event. And I should first thank Cato uh, for hosting me here, and to Ian. I mean, I got an email from him a few months ago saying that, well, you have this new book, we would like to you know, talk about it. And ultimately, that connection led me to here. Um, as Ian said, uh, there is this big question of Islam and modernity in the modern world today. Um, and there are obviously radical elements within the Muslim world which sometimes give a negative, you know, which force a negative answer to that question. But that's not the whole picture about Islam. And uh, my book is about uh, freedom as a general idea, freedom in the political sense, religious freedom, but also economic freedom. And I try to show that there can well be a liberalism within the Muslim culture. And what are the arguments for it, I try to explain. So today I'll focus on the economic issue, and, uh, which is, as uh, I rightly pointed out, actually is the, uh, is the backbone of many of the freedoms that we have. Without economic freedom, without a free exchange of goods, without a free exchange, you can't have free exchange of ideas as well. And I think the very history of Islam testifies to that observation that Milton Friedman and other liberal thinkers in the West uh, stressed. And I'll try to share their history a little bit with you. Most of us in the modern world have something called the check. You know, we have those little papers that we write, you know, we get from banks, we write some money, and we give it to somebody. And, you know, they really are a good way of, you know, organizing our economic life. Uh, but probably very few of us are aware that the word, very word check comes from the Arabic word suck, which means written document. Because actually it was the Arabic merchants, the Arab merchants uh, in the mid Islamic Middle Ages in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, which uh, were much ahead of the West in terms of trading uh, and, and, and economic activity. And they developed this idea that instead of carrying a, you know, a very like a valuable uh, gold with you or like money with you from, from Morocco to Baghdad, they would have a written document and then they would go and cash in, in Morocco and they would go and cash in Baghdad. And when the Crusaders came to the Middle East, they said, well, this may be not a bad idea. And that's how the, the suck uh, was translated into the French Czech and ultimately became the English Czech again. Uh, and this is just one example of actually uh, much of the, much, many, there are many elements that, many inventions, if you will, evolved in the Islamic context and again in the Middle Ages and were transferred into the Western context, in the European context. And even the very words in English, some of the words in English, their very sources actually would point that out. Words like algebra, algorithm, which comes from the Muslim thinker Al-Kharizmi, you know, he was his name, and Al he, decided, he discovered, he developed algorithm and that the word comes from his name, alkali or tariff, these are all Arabic words. And of course, there are the Arabic numerals as well. Need to mention those. Uh, now, there is a reason why some Arab Muslim inventions made their way into the, into Europe in the early Middle Ages. In the in the Middle Ages, I would say, because uh, between the eighth and twelfth centuries, the Islamic world, with the observation of Bernard Lewis, was the most enlightened, was the most wealthiest, was the most advanced part of the world. Uh, Islam, most of the scientific discoveries came from the Muslim world. According to an American historian, Martin Kramer, if there were Nobel Prizes at the time, in the year, in the year 1000, all of them would go to Muslims. So th this was a very interesting time of discovery and, and, act, and like vitality in the Muslim world. Uh, but this obviously failed. 
and you know, a more stagnant culture dominated the Middle East and, and the Muslim world. I'll come to that in a minute. But why Islam was so successful in, in terms of uh, economics? Uh, well, this goes way back to the origin of the, of the religion. I mean, among the world's founders of religion, uh, if I'm not wrong, there was only one who was a good businessman, and that's Prophet Muhammad. Uh, before preaching Islam at the age of 40 and get, get having his first revelations and beginning to proclaim monotheism against a pagan society, he was a very successful merchant. His, his wife also was a successful merchant. And that very profession has uh, left important traces in Islamic thought. There are words attributed to Prophet Muhammad, words such as, nine out of God's blessing comes from trade. Or there's a, another hadith, you know, attributed to Prophet Muhammad, which it literally says, he who makes money pleases God. Uh, there are many, again, sayings attributed to Prophet Muhammad, which uh, cherishes the merchants, the honest merchants, and says that they contributed, they contribute to wealth and, and society. Uh, there's even an interesting case in, in, the Prophet, Muhammad's, in Prophet Muhammad's life uh, that uh, in one instance in Medina, uh, there, in the market, there, some merchants were selling a little dearly, a little you know, expensive, uh, some of their goods. And some people came and said, can you do something, you know, fix the prices in the market? And he said, no, it's only God who can fix the prices. I mean, some modern libertarian or liberal <laughs> Muslim thinkers says, see a, you know, a, 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 the origin of a hidden hand idea there. You know, the God, God regulates the market, but not individuals, you know, mess, mess with that. Uh, and Prophet Muhammad's you know, message is full of that. Of course, the same thing can be said for the Quran, the very uh, core of Islam, the only undisputed source of Islam, who's actually even more authoritative than the, uh, than the life of Prophet himself. It might be interesting to note that the longest verse of the Quran, which is about a page long, uh, is about how to write a proper loan contract, and who should be you know, the witnesses, and how to write it, and how to you know, pay your loan back. Uh, there are other verses uh, which, interestingly, the Quran, uh, shows that the Quran was speaking to a commercial society, a merchant society. Uh, it, it defines the relationship between man and God as a contract in which you know you would get a, get benefits in the afterlife. There are many words that really appeal to a more commercial uh, mindset, and uh, there are many verses which actually, again, uh, support trade. Actually, it's also interesting to note that uh, you know Muslims don't have the exact equivalent of the Sabbath day, but there's Friday is the holy day. So, uh, with, uh, in the in the chapter about the Friday prayers, it says, "When you're called for prayer, leave all your trade and come to prayer." Then it says, "But when you're done, then go back to work and you know seek for God's bounty on earth again with with, uh, with trade." So this very pro-business attitude of early Islam, the Quran and Prophet Muhammad sayings, helped, I would say, Islam flourish in Islamic capitalism. And that term is used by uh, historians who studied the history of the Middle East, like the French historian Fernand Brodel, uh, or Maxim Robinson, who was actually a French Marxist, but who wrote this very interesting book, Islam and Capitalism, in the 60s. And it's a very good book, you know, for those of you who want to dig deeper into the Quran, Hadith, and, 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 the, and, the, and the sources of capitalist economy there. I would strongly suggest that. Of course, there are other Quranic concepts which led some modern Muslims to think that the Quran actually envisions a, envisions a socialistic model. And that's nothing other than the uh, Quran's emphasis on taking care of the poor, 
charity or compassion towards towards the poor. There is an institution in Islam called zakat that you know every Muslim uh, should give some of its wealth to the poor, uh, and and the number has been you know uh, interpreted differently. But my take on that, and, and the take of other uh, thinkers who've wrote about this, is that when Quran speaks about uh, charity and helping the poor, it is not really defining a redistribution of wealth. It is telling every individual believer to show compassion. So it's giving an individual duty. There's a famous uh, hadith, again, a saying attributed to Prophet Muhammad, which says, uh, whoever sleeps with a full stomach when his neighbor is hungry is not a good Muslim. Now, Islamic socialists have looked at this and said, so there should be a socialist system. Whereas my take is that, well, the Hadith says, uh, whoever sleeps, you know, uh, whoever has a hungry neighbor should not go and call the welfare state to feed the neighbor. It tells you to help your neighbor. So there's certainly an idea of charity and support for the poor, but this is not a centralized redistribution of wealth. And no wonder in Islamic history, the, the, the method of really, uh, Altruism has not been, a, again, a socialistic economy, creating a socialist economy, but creating foundations, waqf in Arabic, uh, endowments uh, created by wealthy people to uh, create soup kitchens or uh, create scholarships for poor students. And that has been the Islamic tradition, actually, until the modern ages, in which the states became actually became gradually bigger and bigger and dominated you know, the economies of the Middle East. There's another uh, issue which is always mentioned, the issue of interest. You know, the Quran condemns interest. But actually, the Quran condemns something called riba. Uh, and Muslim scholars have discussed whether it is exactly bank, the modern banking interest that, that we have today, or is it excessive usury? And there are different views about this. But some people uh, say, and uh, including Imad Ahmed, who is with us actually today in the audience, he has great articles about this in his uh, think tank, Minerva Freedom. Uh, some people uh, argue that what the Quran really condemns is excessive usury, but not the reasonable banking interest uh, that, that we have today. And Christians had this distinction you know, in, in, in the Middle Ages at some point, and maybe Muslims uh, should have that distinction as well. Now, this whole history of early capitalism in Islam is a famous story, and it's not unknown. But there's an other aspect of this that I really found very fascinating, and I discovered as I studied on my book over the years. And it is this. This decline of Islamic capitalism, this decline of the merchant culture in Islam, if you will, very much corresponds, it corresponds to the decline of the more liberal schools of thought within the Islamic civilization. In other words, the decline of free markets led to the decline of free minds in the Muslim world. And this was a gradual process which began in the 10th, 11th century, and it was gradually you know, solidified in the next few couple of centuries. And Islamic civilization lost much of its early vitality and dynamism uh, after, the, I would say, 11th century, gradually in a few centuries. That's why when, when you come back to the 16th century, while Europe was flourishing, Islam was really not flourishing at all. Islamic world became stagnant. And in the 20th century, where, in which the West really flourished, Islamic world looked like a very, very closed and stagnant uh, culture because of this, you know, uh, I would say, decline in the Islamic economy. But, and, and let me give you a brief example of those a few things. Uh, in, now, to, in the modern world, uh, the Muslims who made Islam a news item are generally the Muslims who are more radical and more intolerant and who really do uh, 
terrible things in the name of Islam, such as terrorism or other other oppressions that I totally I'm totally against. Uh, but when you look at Islamic history, there has been very interesting schools of thought, and very interesting debates took place in early Islam. For example, one of the earliest theological debates was whether on the question of whether individuals had free will or whether they were predestined by God. And a particular school of thought called the Qadiris strongly supported the free will idea. They said, well, we have free will because why otherwise God would punish or you know, reward us in afterlife? Since God is just and, and since he's trying us on earth, we should be able to, to choose and we should have the, the, the things that we have free will. And f some philosophers from this school also emphasize political freedom as well. They said every individual has the right to, should have the right to, free, should be free to choose so that he will be tested by God without any interference. Now, at the other end, there was another school called Jabriya, which means, literally means enforcement. They said just God enforces everything on us. So there's no free will predestination. Now, what is interesting is that the political authorities of the time, the Umayyad caliphs, which were not really you know, pious caliphs at all, they were corrupt and tyrannical rulers, they realized that they, the free will idea doesn't help them, but the predestinarian idea helps them. Because they thought if everything is predestined by God, our rule is predestined by God as well. So we are on the throne because God wills so. So they intervened in this theological issue and supported the more fatalistic predestinarian rule and crushed the more uh, rationalistic school which would emerge from the free will school. There is another discussion, for example, in early Islam on whether reason had a justified role in finding truth. One school of thought called the Mutazila, which was a continuation of this free will school, said revelation is from God, but also reason is from God. So we can use both revelation and reason interchangeably or you know, together to find the truth. Thanks to that, they said, well, Greeks have some good ideas. They use reason, so we can use Greek sources as well to find, you know, find the truth. The, oppo the opposite school said, no, no, reason leads astray. So we will only blindly follow uh, the, the dogmas that we have. That's revelation plus the prophetic tradition, and they emphasize the letter very much for complicated reasons that I go into detail in my book. Uh, but, but the co point is, again, ultimately the political authorities sided with the more dogmatic school and not with the, uh, the school which emphasized the uh, role of reason in Islamic thinking. Uh, there was a, a third debate, and you know, I don't want to go into the, every debate in Islamic school, but the, the last example that I will give, there was a third debate in early Islam. And this debate was on whether, uh, who had access to the ultimate truth. There was a school, a very, I wouldn't even say school, a radical movement called the Harijites who said every Muslim who disagrees with them are heretics and they should be punished. So they set on killing even fellow Muslims. This, this early school in Islam called Harijites are the forerunners of today's Al-Qaeda and other you know, radical groups in, in, in the Muslim world. But there is a very opposite school to that, to these Harijites. They said, who knows, you know, who has access to truth ultimately? They said, well, only God knows that. So we can't claim to know what God knows. So, so let's postpone this disagreement on who has the truth to afterlife. That's why they were called the postponers, the murjites in Arabic. And I was quite struck to read that this idea that you know, different religious groups should postpone their disagreements to afterlife and just live together you know, harmoniously in, in, in freedom. I read the same argument uh, by John Locke in his letter concerning toleration, which was made 
thousand years after this postponement. So I was struck by the parallelism between between the, the source of liberalism in that school of Islam and the source of liberalism in the West. Now here's, the, here's what is interesting. All these early schools which uh, defended a more rational, a more pluralist, uh, and a more free will focused interpretation of Islam, they emerged in the centers of trade. They emerged in Baghdad, they emerged in Basra, and they were supported mostly and created by merchants, Islamic merchants, who, by their engagement with different cultures, became much more open-minded, much more cosmopolitan. And they were still Islamic believers, but they realized that you know, Islam will gain from interaction from other cultures. On the other hand, the more rigid dogmatic school of thought grew in, in the Arabian desert, and it was very much the opposite of the merchant class. Uh, they were the, the founders of these schools, for example, when you look at them, for example, Abu Hanifa, the founder of the most liberal uh, of the uh, Sunni schools, he was a merchant himself who was traveling all over the world, and his, well, not all over the world at the time, but all over the Middle East, I would say, and he was getting acquainted with different cultures, and his thinking of Islam and Islamic law is very dynamic. But when you look at uh, Imam Hanbal, for example, the, most the founder of the most dogmatic school in Sunni Islam, he was a landlord who hated trade and who denounced trade as something which leads people astray. And, and, he had, and that landlord class had an you know, alliance with the soldiers of the time, which was a different class uh, against merchants. And it is no accident, uh, as I trace in my book, that the decline of trade in medieval Islam, for various reasons, because trade shifted from the Middle East to, to, to Europe gradually, trade shifted from the Mediterranean even to the, to the oceans gradually, but the decline of trade is, is very much uh, it goes hand in hand with the decline of the more liberal attitudes within Islam. And, and, and when actually, actually Islam became a backwater in terms of the world economics, it became more stagnated and more dogmatic. Now, do I have a few more minutes? Or? Yeah. Now, this, this theory that I try, I'm trying to share, which is, you know, all the details are there in my book, I tried to, you know, uh, I, I, saw, I showed the scholars who studied about this, and I, all the arguments are there. And, and how, what were the reasons for debate and discussion between theological schools? It's, all, it's a very interesting story. But this debate also makes gives us an important, you know, quite a new question to our minds: If the decline of Islamic capitalism in early uh, in early Islam in the Middle Ages led to the stagnation of, of Muslim minds. Can the rise of Islamic capitalism, can a rebirth of Islamic capitalism open up minds and create a context in which more liberal ideas can flourish in the Muslim world? Now that's a question I ask and I also answer in the book uh, by looking at some of the modern uh, trends in, in, in current uh, Islamic world. And I use Turkey as a case study there because Turkey, Turkey is known for various things so it's the only secular state in the Muslim world. It is the most modernized of uh, many Muslim nations. But at the same time, Turkey right now is the most uh, capitalist e economy in the whole Muslim world. The most free market capitalism. I mean, there's crony capitalism everywhere, but that's really not, we're not discussing. There are some you know, Arab tyrants who just you know, bribe some of their 
their people, their like uh, friends and family and, and their supporters. And of course, there's a lot of oil money distributed again by these trades, but that's not capitalism. Oil money is not capitalism. It's not, it's not free market capitalism, at least. What, what matters is that whether you have a educated middle class entrepreneurs uh, who really engage in business, who make plans, and who really, uh, who, be, who become more rationalized you know, during this process. Now in Turkey, we have that, we don't have oil in Turkey, and that's been a lot for us, as our former president Özal says several times. So we have this, uh, since the 80s, with Turkey's growing interaction with the world and opening up to the world economy, we have a class which now people call the Islamic bourgeoisie. These are pious Muslims in Turkey who pray five times a day, uh, whose wives or probably daughters would wear a headscarf, but instead of sitting at home, their daughters want to go to universities, and that's why we have a headscarf problem in Turkey, because universities are, you know, headscarf is banned in universities. And that's why actually most of them have come to the United States to be educated in here, and they saw a free society here. Uh, and they saw that, you know, a secular state can have different meanings. This, the meaning of the United States is very much different, you know, uh, than, than it was in Turkey. But, that, but that's a long story, but the thing is, this new middle class in Turkey, it's just becoming more global, is in support of Turkey's EU accession, for example, but also is looking at religion from a more individualistic perspective. Now we have Islamic feminists in Turkey who say, well, there is this problem of male domination in Islamic tradition. We are believers, we believe in the Quran, but we think that it was interpreted by men for 14 centuries, so now we claim our role. There are Islamic liberals in Turkey who would say, well, Islam has been interpreted in a communitarian sense for centuries, but now we are discovering the role of the individual in early Islam. Uh, a a, a conservative-minded Islamic thinker in Turkey actually wrote about this in a, in a very, a, a, like, not in a very happy way, you know, a few years ago, and he said, in the past, we were discussing about Quran and obedience. Now people are asking about Quran and freedom. How can they be reconciled? This is, this is uh, inevitable because I think in all these major monotheistic religions, we, all, we have a text, but how we look at the text and what we are looking for it has, has something to do with our context. So if we live in an open society in which we, if we are exposed to different cultures thanks to our uh, connection with the world, and that really is boosted by, the, by a free economy, then we look at our religions in, in a way which, in which we try to find sources of liberalism, sources of pluralism. Today, a Muslim who gets convinced by the liberal idea in the West can look at early Islam and can, can find the postponers to say, well, let's just believe in, in the way we want and God will decide in the afterlife. But someone who is fanaticized by his context can look at the, har the Harijites, the radical fanatics in, in the early, early Islam, and they can, you know, associate themselves with those. And they do. I mean, the fanatics who, there are, who are out there certainly uh, find sources in Islamic tradition for their militancy, for their belligerency, for their authoritarianism. But there are source, other sources as well. And the question whether Muslims will look for those sources depends very much on their context, what kind of a society they live. That's why uh, if, if there's any solution to this big issue of Islam and modernity, my suggestion in the book is to say, say, well, the West, if you're speaking about what the West can do, 
should support two important dynamics in the Muslim world. One is the market economy, which would help Muslim societies create their own dignity and create their own dynamism and their rationality. Uh, secondly, democracy. And you know, the West, in some countries, had made the mistake of supporting some dictators. And the people who are suppressed by those dictators became anti-Western you know, ideologues because they, they just channeled their, their hatred. So that's why in the, these two the dynamics, uh, supporting democracy in the Muslim world and supporting free market economy is, I think, what the West can do as a contribution to the Islamic to the efforts for change within Islam. What should not be done is, as I see, military confrontations between the West and the Muslim world, because that only leads the idea that the Muslim world is under attack. That is the common theme of all radicals. And that, uh, that only makes people more reactionary and defensive in the Muslim world. And I think the history, and, and by military confrontations, I mean colonialism, I mean occupations, I mean constant problems in the Muslim world uh, between Muslims and non-Muslims, like the Israeli-Palestinian problem, which should be solved somehow, certainly peacefully. So the more we establish peace and a sense of security, <coughs> I'm sorry, and unleash the market and democratic dynamics, I think the more there will be chances for a genuinely Islamic liberalism to emerge uh, in the Muslim world. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, uh, Mustafa. I'm happy to introduce now Chris Marin as our uh, next speaker. He is the co-founder and the executive director of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And although uh, I don't believe that he considers himself an expert on Islam, he has spent uh, a good deal of, of time thinking about the relationship between religion and liberty generally, and uh, more specifically, uh, religion in, in the West and liberty. So he has uh, a lot of insights on uh, that important relationship. He is a uh, graduate from Johns Hopkins University, and he is well recognized as, as well as a leader in the non nonprofit uh, management, uh, where, and he's done consulting in dozens of countries on that uh, and on best practices in measuring uh, management and fundraising in the non-for-profit sector. This is a very difficult field. Uh, please help me welcome Chris Martin. Thank you, Ian. And thank you to Cato for letting me be here today. I'm a longtime admirer of Cato. Uh, in fact, my first job offer out of Hopkins was with Cato. You probably don't no, know I that. don't know that. Um, We've been working closely with Ed Crane, so maybe I okay. dodged a bullet there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Cato's a great organization, and I'm glad that you are here supporting Cato. It's also good to be here with Mustafa, who I consider a longtime friend, and I had the privilege of reading this book in manuscript form, and again, uh, in the, uh, the printed version, uh, and, and I concur with Ian, it's a fantastic book. It's easy to read, and that's... Uh, uh, stands to reason because Mustafa is a journalist, so he writes in comprehensible ways as opposed to some academic treatments. I, the book is very encouraging to me because, like maybe some of you, uh, we're surrounded by an awful lot of people who are impossibly pessimistic about the possibilities of rapprochement between the West uh, and Islam, between Islam and, and liberty, 
between Christianity and Islam, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think the moment we lose our uh, optimism for the possibilities of a rapprochement, uh, we are left with no options but war and conquest against each other, which is, seems to be the path that we've been pursuing uh, as, as a country uh, against uh, many Muslim countries, which is a pity. So anyway, I, I thank you first for the optimistic review, and, and I should also say, as Ian said, I'm not an expert on Islam. Everything I know about Islam, I've learned from this book. Almost <laughs> everything. Uh, and it is good, and I learned a number of things, <clears throat> such as some of the very concrete, positive contributions of Islam uh, to core freedoms uh, that we cherish, uh, certainly in the West. Uh, things like the, the inalienable dignity of the individual, uh, and even rights for women have some origins in, in the Prophet and the Quran, which are, which are things that I, I would happily learn. Uh, and of course, I would make the case that in, in uh, the Christian tradition with which I'm more familiar, has also made a number of contributions uh, in that regard. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna broaden slightly from the topic of is Islam compatible with free markets, just for a moment, to what is beneath that topic, which is, is Islam uh, compatible with liberty? And even maybe slightly broader than that, because it may be at the heart of some of uh, concerns here, and certainly in our cultures, is religion compatible uh, with liberty? See, I guess, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Dark power is rising. Is uh, religion compatible with liberty? Um, religion, wow. This is, uh, you guys can see me at least, okay. Uh, what they really need to do is fix your microphone because there is a reverberation. They should attend to that. Okay. Can you, can you switch the microphone around a little bit maybe? Well, closer to you or something like that. Is that a little bit better? Hello? Just go ahead. All right. We'll, we'll, okay. Just go ahead. Uh, religion certainly is a frightening <coughs> force in the world. <coughs> I read in the paper yesterday in the statement of guilt by the uh, underwear bomber, uh, he, made, he said something to the effect that this may be against U.S. laws, but uh, this is, this is uh, honoring the laws of uh, Islam, which, which we know is not at the heart, certainly, of the Quran or of, of the true faith. Um, and before that, uh, before, during the founding, and, and certainly in parts today, uh, other world religions like Christianity have perfected the art of coercion as well. Uh, so with right reason, uh, people are afraid of religion. But religion, I would argue, and I'm not going to get too deep into this unless you want to pursue it, but. Religion has been a force for good when it's faithful to its truest doctrines. And I think that's the, the, the point that is made so well in this book by Mustafa, that much of what we see uh, in the name of Islam, which is coercive, uh, is not drawn properly from the core sources of Islam, but are drawn from aberrant cultures, if I can put it that way, uh, and what needs to happen, Mustafa argues, is going back to the sources, going back to the life of the prophet, going back to the Quran itself, uh, and trying to draw from it the lessons for freedom. 
And I would argue the same for Christianity. Certainly it's true that the darkest moments in history of the world have been when religions have used the power of the state uh, to secure uh, the ends that they desired. Uh, and uh, uh, since I'm from the Acton Institute, I should certainly quote Lord Acton. Lord Acton was the fellow that said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But he also said something about the importance of religion and implied here the importance of separation of religion from the state. And that is, if people aren't ruled by their conscience, they'll be ruled by the barrel of a gun. And so that, that might be somewhat provocative to you, but I'm suggesting <coughs> that religion is not just incompatible with liberty, it's, it's necessary. Because without a moral formation, without people choosing right action, without a well-formed conscience, uh, without some of the cores of religious belief, such as the golden rule, um, our freedom would quickly disintegrate into anarchy and authoritarianism. How's that for being provocative here? Uh, so the, the big question of religion for good or evil, uh, I fall on the side of for good. It certainly has been used for evil, um, but again, those I think are largely in the areas when the church or religion has co-opted the state. I'm reminded of, in particular, a couple great moments in, in Christian history where were it not for um, Christian believers uh, understanding themselves to be, to have a destiny and dignity beyond the state, we would not have had great advances in liberty. And um, the first, well, let me start with uh, uh, sayings of Jesus, in, in fact. Do you remember the great line where he said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So for the first time really in history, um, Christianity through Jesus asserts the separation between uh, conscience, between faith, and the state. This was radically revolutionary at the time. Um, and you see, uh, just after the legalization of Christianity, for example, in, in 390, there's this great moment of drama in the history of the world in Milan. But just prior to this, uh, the emperor had, had uh, massacred thousands of people um, because he was upset at a perceived offense. And he went, because it was a state religion, he went to church, went to mass, and then he got to the, to the steps of the cathedral there in Milan, uh, the bishop, Ambrose, came out and denied him entrance. And it's just unthinkable. Any emperor um, up to that day would have beheaded him and walked on in. Uh, but instead, the bishop directed him that he must repent uh, for the sins of murdering the innocents. And remarkably, he did. So for weeks on end, the emperor came back in sackcloth and ashes, essentially, and prayed and asked for forgiveness outside the church. And it's an astonishing uh, truth to power moment in the history of the world. But it reinforces uh, this teaching that Jesus had talked about of the separation between our faith, uh, our, our spirit, spiritual lives, and, and the state. Uh, and you see that moment played out uh, 400 years later, nearly 400 years later. Uh, so 
uh, you know, my argument is that that is but among a number of moments and teachings that faith has given us as a defense against arbitrary power and the, and the total authority of the state. Certainly other folks have argued for the importance of religion and in particular, I'll say Christianity and the development of the West, including capitalism as we, we know it. Certainly the Max Weber thesis that many of us are familiar with makes this case of the importance of, of Christian religious beliefs uh, in bringing about capitalism. And there's a terrific recent book by Rodney Stark called The Victory of Reason, which I commend to you, which traces uh, the development of capitalism and liberty in the West and relies heavily on the role of, of faith uh, and reason in uh, bringing about our freedoms. So <clears throat> anyway, I'll get back a little more narrowly now to the economic uh, piece of this that Mustafa talked about and was our topic today. Is Islam compatible with the free market? Well, all I know, again, is from the arguments from Mustafa, and I'm perfectly persuaded. And I, in fact, if, even if I hadn't read the book, I have long argued that the way to build this rapprochement with, with Islam is through free markets, is through trade. Uh, and this is based partly on my very limited knowledge of the prophet, who himself was a very successful merchant, uh, but, but also, of course, on the history, uh, the narrative that we know of Islam having been a very successful merchant um, uh, um, system and with traders uh, throughout uh, the, the, the Mediterranean. Um, and I'm particularly persuaded by uh, the argument Mustafa makes that you see the decline of liberal ideas within Islam at the same time we're seeing the decline of trade in the West. But I'm also uh, persuaded by my own experience in China. I studied Mandarin. I lived in China for a number of years, uh, in and out of China, and working there. And uh, <clears throat> what we've seen in the last 20 plus years there is a re remarkable, robust free market economy uh, that has developed. Uh, and uh, while there are plenty of legitimate criti criticisms of lack of other freedoms in China, political freedoms, uh, even religious freedoms certainly, um, it is true that one freedom bleeds over to the others. And I'm perfectly convinced that as the Chinese acquire more and more uh, comforts, economic comforts, and uh, exposure to, to the West through trade, that these other rights will become inevitable. And I think there's good evidence that that is happening today. So I, I think, and I've always felt, that the free mar promotion of the free market is the bridge to broader freedoms. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's perfectly appropriate for Islam, and I, I do hope that we will build, build a strategy uh, to bring this about in the uh, coming years. Uh, the opposite of building a bridge of freedom with Islam is, is unthinkable. And uh, I want to encourage people to be optimistic about the possibilities. And I think this book is a great step for all of us to, to read and to persuade others to read and to build a bridge through economics to liberty with Islam.